I'm actually recording Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Six o'clock my time, act two of Sweeney Todd as a guest host on a podcast called Thank You Five. Cute. (laughs) I've had Sweeney Todd in my head for the last two weeks, so that's an inspiring thing. (laughs) I did find that there is an Angela Lansbury, George Hearn recording that I didn't know about it until two weeks ago. I feel failed by my gaze. I was never the best musical mo, but no. But I feel like someone along yeah, the line yeah, would like, think, especially since we went to the theater school. Yeah, <laughs> and it's never been a secret that Sweeney Todd is the musical that had me love musicals. Oh yeah. Speaking of who, this has been bugging me for two days. Who was I took care of his dog and almost got killed. Who was the theater history? Doc O'Malley. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. I knew the O and I kept thinking like, Dennis O'Hare? No, that's somebody else. <laughs> Doc O'Malley. It's a name out of Hollywood. Yeah. Doc O'Malley. Like out of the Western. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Oma Lord, Chicago history you didn't learn in school. And I am once again joined by John Zinn. How you doing today, buddy? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay for a Wednesday. It's my Saturday. Um, that's better. Yeah. I spent it watching the second act of Sweeney Todd. <laughs> yes. And a leg day. Okay. First, a little update for our listeners. Our friend Jimbo Lewis died a few weeks ago. From the Tylenol murder suspect. I don't know what he died of. They didn't announce it. But more than one person saw the link and thought to send it to me. So my Google algorithms, they'll be mystifying if somebody ever tries to look at them. Where was he living again when he... Now, I... Was it someplace new or was he still... He was still in Boston. Okay. Boston, that's right. Okay. I got to ask, John, do you have a favorite place for Chicago-style pizza? Mm. Of course, Pequod's jumps to mind. That's the gold standard. Mm -hmm. The reason I ask is after about a dozen dark episodes of this podcast, and this will be following two particularly grueling episodes about the 1968 DNC. Oh, yeah. It would be nice if Omalort sprinkled the content with hot dogs, pizza, Italian beef, and Malort. Oh, God, we're talking pizza. <laughs> we're talking the history of these foods. Of all of it. Oh, my God. Excellent. I'm so glad. It's fascinating. We're going to start with the Chicago style hot dog because 
it so happens that today is National Hot Dog Day. Nice. When asked about it, Anthony Bourdon said, quote, the finest hot dog on the planet. There, I said it and I meant it. Now fuck off. I did a little digging into what he said about Chicago cuisine. I'm just going to throw this out here. I always forget he really liked the old town alehouse. Did you know that? Oh, it sounds familiar, actually. I feel like I remember the Red Orchid people saying that or seeing him do a cast from there or something. Yes, because I remember him talking about those crazy paintings. Yeah. The crazy paintings. And he sat down with the owner and asked him, what's your regulars like in these hardcore alcoholics? Yeah. According to Chicago Magazine, during a quick bender, this is quoting them, during a quick bender, Bourdain tweeted about the fantastic bartenders at Old Town Ale House, Billy Goat Tavern, and The Hideout, the latter of which he deemed the perfect bar. I love The Hideout. I don't think I've ever been there, but it's worth commenting on. The first bar he mentioned has a painting of a sex act between Donald Trump and Putin, and the second is a subterranean bar. So I guess out of those three, The Hideout is the best. What's even more alarming for me is there have been times in my life where I am known and recognized by the staff at the first two. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if I go to a bar now, it's the Billy Go because it's where boat people go. Mm. I went to find the tweet to round out this conversation. The actual tweet was sent at 10.59 p.m., July 16th, 2012. And it says, best bartenders in America, colon, Chicago, hashtag alehouse, hashtag hideout, hashtag Billy Goat. Yeah. I remember, I didn't, I have been to the Billy Goat, but I, not frequently. I went to the hideout numerous times. I rehearsed a show across the street. We always went there. It was so fun seeing shows there. When I had some friends in a Red Orchid Theater, uh, which is a storefront theater in Old Town, I just remember going in there with them once. And as you said, there are all those sort of graphic paintings, please, a lot of nude women. And uh, I walked in there once and we both looked up and we're like, that one's new. It was a naked Blagojevich in jail. Yes. And, yeah. The bartender was like, we just thought we had too many naked women and we needed to even it out a little bit. <laughs> I could tell so many stories. One of Jim's roommates worked at the Ale House when Jim moved. So early aughts, mid-aughts. Mm. And I went in 2016. He was still working there. Wow. Wow. <laughs> My Billy Goat story is, I was in there one day, and this guy comes in, and he's like, do you have a specialty cocktail list? And the bartender's like, no. <laughs> he ordered an old fashioned and I felt compelled to stop him, but I didn't. He takes a sip. I said to him, How's the old fashioned? And he's like, This doesn't taste like any cocktail I've ever had. I'm like, This is a beer or rum and coke kind of bar. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Back to the Chicago dog. I want to point out that it's worth noting Germans introduced 
Wrigley Field, Sox Park, and all other sports stadium mainstays. Tubed meats and beer. I found an article from The Thrillist. With their sausage skills in demand and a huge pool of cheap labor, Germans dominated Chicago's meat industry. In 1880, it's estimated 36% of all butchers in the city were German immigrants, and many more were of German origin. The Frankfurters they brought with them were the perfect industrial food item. Chicago was the meatpacking capital of the world, butchering hogs and cattle from all over the Midwest, and thus was a leader in the industrialization of food. The introduction of steam-powered meat choppers allowed Chicago factories to turn less desirable meat trimmings from their plants in the Union Stockyard into affordable street food. Chicago's oldest hot dog brand, David Berg, was founded in 1860, and national brands like Armour and Oscar Mayer soon followed. I feel like they should have called those hot dog stands less desirable meat trimming. We'll get to what they were called. They weren't always called hot dogs. Okay. All right. In our 1855 Lager Beer Riot episode, we talked about how the Germans were the largest purveyors of beer in the city. Now we learn a lot of them are butchers. Never tell me immigrants do not contribute to culture. Our story continues with more refugees. We'll get to the contents of what makes a Chicago dog, but a defining feature is that it is an all beef kosher hot dog. Even if it's the lesser desirable cuts, it's all beef. Right. And that was introduced at the 1893 World Fair by two Jewish immigrants, Samuel Landini and Emil Reichel. They formed Vienna Beef Hot Dogs. I love it. I love it was introduced at the World Fair there. Yeah. Jewish immigrants. That's fantastic. By Jewish immigrants, they came from Hungary, Vienna, which was not a great place for Jewish people at the time. I mean, then again, Nowhere in Europe was. In 1909, Sam Rosen, another immigrant, opened a bakery in Chicago, creating the requisite poppy seed bun. Mm. His origin story is fascinating. He was born in 1886 in Poland. He moved to Germany at the age of nine to be a baker's apprentice. I'm guessing it was less that at nine he knew he wanted to be a baker, but more about escaping pogroms in Poland. I would imagine, yes. I don't know a lot of nine-year-old boys are like, I'm going to go be a baking apprentice now. Yeah. Although kids baking championships. That is, yeah. yeah. You never know. Yeah. A little bit of both. A little bit of both. At 13, he relocated to New York City, and he opened his first bakery at 16. He organized the city's first baker's union. Oh, my God. An action which cost him hearing in one ear because a strike breaker hit him over the head. He moved to Chicago when he was in his early 20s. 
after living more life than any of us have lived. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, and they make really great rye bread too. From there, a multitude of ethnicities added their own topping until we got the Chicago dog, which is perhaps more of a metaphor for America than a melting pot or a stew. They like to imagine every ethnicity that works in the stockyards is just, let's put potatoes on it and see how it happens. <laughs> Thrillist says, what had once been a way for Germans to stay connected to their roots became a way for all people all over the city to bond. What was once a city of immigrants from all over the world was building its own culture and their unique hot dog was at the center of that identity. For the uninitiated, this Chicago favorite includes a poppy seed bun, as we've discussed, filled with an all-beef wiener topped with relish, the color of the Chicago River on St. Patrick's Day. West. Onions. Mustard. A pickle sphere. Sports peppers. And celery salt. Ketchup is now considered verboten on a Chicago dog. They didn't include it for any moral reason. They just thought it didn't play with the taste menagerie. Mm. It would make it too sweet. Oh my God. And that became, that's one of those no ketchup is, maybe we'll get to my story about the wiener circle, but the no ketchup is about, that's a Chicago thing as much as dibs, right? Ketchup. So for instance. No ketchup. And I'm a ketchup stand. I just listed all that stuff. And you might be thinking, that's a lot of stuff to put on a hot dog. It emerged during the Great Depression. Bill Savage, hot dog historian and English professor at Northwestern, also brother of sex columnist Dan Savage, told Block Club Chicago, before, during, and after the Depression, hot dogs were the food of working people. But Chicago-style dogs were really a product of the Great Depression, dot, dot, dot. A nickel could get you a hot dog with all of these condiments, and it made it something approaching a full meal. I can see it. Yeah, I can see it. I want to underscore, Dan Savage's brother is a hot dog historian. But he talks a lot about different stuff in history because we had him at Steppenwolf at one point talking about, I can't remember, but I love that he, I love that he can take a deep dive on this. I love it. <laughs> I want to underscore something of a meal. It was called the Depression Sandwich. Oh, geez. A name given by the obsolete joint flukies who claim creation of this culinary advance it appealed to both the working class and german and slav immigrants who popularized sausage again the chicago hot dog is the culmination of contributions of various ethnicities well being considered not white. Got it. I read an article about 
some weirdo white nationalist who would only eat European-based foods. <laughs> I'd like to see him go back and just have to eat English and French food. Yeah. Yeah. No hot dogs for you. No beer for you. No right. vodka for you. Oh, my God. Idiots. Yeah. So that's hot dogs. Can I just end with my wiener? Can we yes. talk? The wiener and then we'll, yeah. The wiener circle is a very famous hot dog joint in, in Chicago on Park Street. Yeah. Yes. Where, where they, let's say they abuse you. <laughs> or they will frankly <laughs> yell at you if they make your order, your appearance. It's all an act, but it is very intense when you go in there. I went in there with a number of people from the theater school. One, one kid who had bleach blonde hair, it was the summer, so everyone was wearing colors. And we walked up, there was like, I don't know, four or five of us. We walked up to the counter and the woman said, what you want in sync? So a couple of us were being very pleasant and tried to get away with our order. A couple of them were interacting, whatever. And then the guy behind us asked for ketchup. Oh she, no. She grabbed a spatula. And started coming over the counter. <laughs> we just took our hot dogs and fled. <laughs> Running down the street. Yes, eating our hot dogs. Yeah. I was out with a couple and their, their sister was in town. We all stayed in the car and sent her in there and said, make sure you ask for ketchup. <laughs> well, that's terrible. <laughs> she didn't really know what to say. She's there. Customer service approach is interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but I love them. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting. There are some places that are just like, we don't care if you have ketchup. Yeah. But not the wiener circle is too much of a purist. I think it's interesting. I think Portillo's, a lot of places, it's serve your own ketchup. So you don't have to worry about the, the shame of asking for ketchup like a 14-year-old boy trying to buy condoms. What was the really good one? Uh, it's the other like upper hot dogs. That's it. I think it's hot dog dogs. There's dog, also super dog. And then there was the, that one under the L. Demon dogs. Yeah. During Christmas vacation, I had a bunch of people in from out of town. And... They were supposed to meet me. I had a doctor's appointment or something. This is when I lived up in Levitt. And I had to be in Lincoln Park. It was cold. And they blew me off at Demon Dogs. I waited at Demon Dogs for an hour. Now, listener, if you are not familiar with Demon Dogs, it's owned by the manager of the band Chicago. And they only played songs by the band Chicago. It's amazing. I gotta get out of here. I can't stay here anymore. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. One more hot dog story. You'll have to edit these out, but. Oh no. The place. Oh, dang. Fire dogs. It was on North Avenue, pretty near Halstead. There's a little mall where that Italian restaurant is. And it sat like a little brick house in there. Maybe it's something fire dogs. I can't remember now. But when you ordered, there was a, a jail cell between you and the person serving your order. One of the people who worked with me at the theater, which was just around the corner, bought a bunch for everybody one day. I 
my desk was incredibly messy. I set mine on my desk. It got covered by papers. Four days later, I discovered it exactly in the shape of a hot dog, but was so hard. It was just this little hot dog statue. That's hilarious. Now, they did not do classic Chicago hot dogs, obviously, but there's every corner there was a stand. There are fewer and fewer Mm. still in business. There was one on Lincoln right by the old uh, Victory Gardens. Mm -hmm. The old one, not the Biograph one. Then there was one. There's going to be a reason why these are met by theater geographics then there was one by the theater building on belmont that i know closed and my neighborhood there's mangies on lincoln avenue which has italian beef and chicago style hot dogs of course you can always go to the italian beef places to get the chicago dog people just might not be eating as many hot dogs as they used to very possible it's i did a i did a deep dive into twinkies too for a future hey it's been 12 weeks of really dark material let's talk about twinkies but it was definitely a healthy lifestyle changed that the billy goat actually apparently also has a really good chicago dog in my line of work i have to make a lot of where should i go for chicago dogs and there used to be a devil dogs on wabash and they closed oh okay. yeah it is changing yeah yeah, it's that's a conversation for a different time. There was a headline that people were jumping on Pertillo's leaving Chicago for Texas, unable to expand in Chicago. They have eight locations in the Chicago land area. Yeah. It's expanded. It's expanded. Yeah, maybe they want head. They they yeah. have Pertillo's in in other places. They have a Pertillo's I know in Fullerton, California. Vienna Beef announced a month ago that they're reopening a restaurant and corporate headquarters at its former Bucktown factory. So that's exciting. In the hot dog world. Okay. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm like, oh, all right, here we go. All right. People always ask me, what's your favorite place to get Chicago-style pizza? I really want to say wherever my out-of-town guests want to go. How do you feel about Chicago-style pizza? I do need to have it, but not often. (laughs) It would not, like, as many times as we would order pizza, it would more times than not not be chicago style but you gotta have it every once in a while you gotta have it every once in a while i found two places within walking distance of where i am now that have it by the slice and every once in a while i'll just go have a slice of chicago style pizza because two slices and you're going to explode oh yeah and if you buy a whole pizza between two people that will probably last you three weeks right and it's not a good cold pizza. Yeah, exactly. We'll get into it. Hold, hold. The BBC. I'm going with some hard-hitting sources here. The BBC describes it as sliced into a deep dish and your knife sinks through layers of meat and vegetables, thin tomato sauce, 
dense mozzarella cheese, and finally, a resistant cracker-like crust. The cake-like pan is first coated in olive oil, then topped with a white and semolina flour dough mixture, which gets pressed against the, the deep pan's round bottom and edges. The olive oil slightly fries the dough during the baking process, giving it a distinct golden crunch. Before hitting the oven, a layer of sliced mozzarella is covered with vegetables and meats, typically Italian sausage, then topped with a sweet layer of crushed tomatoes. The inverted layers of ingredients prevent the cheese from burning, while the meat, vegetables, sauce, and crust marry their flavors. That is exquisite. It, it describes it. <laughs> I'm a cheese lover. That's why I like, every once in a while, a good slice of Chicago style. Yeah, that's one slice and then a salad and then last you two weeks. Yeah. Anthony Bourdain famously described Chicago pizza as a concoction I've always strongly believed to be lasagna in a crust. M more than anything that could bear the proud name of pizza. He later seeded it was delicious, but remained inquisitive about calling it pizza. He also said, inexplicably, in spite of their general excellence in food, drink, music, everything really, their most famous cultural export is the appalling deep dish pizza. Irony being, in a town where everything is great, they're most famous for something that sucks. That's extreme, but I get the sentiment. <laughs> I do get the sentiment, and it'll come up later in another item we're going to discuss. Not his sentiment, just that irony. Yeah. According to Tim Samuelson, a historian, it is reported that deep dish pizza was created by Pizzeria Uno owner Ike Sewell in 1943. According to a 1956 article in Chicago Daily News, they assert that Uno's chef Rudy Melnati created the recipe. However, the, this is Rudy Melnati. Oh, not Lou. Okay, got it. However, the Chicago Tribune says that it's been on the menu at Rosati's Authentic Chicago Pizza as early as 1926. I have had a few guests who definitely, like you said, had to see Pizza Uno. Had yeah. The one they had to go to. That is the one a lot of people. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores. And it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. 
That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Go to, we're going to take Rosati's out of the story. Because we're going to talk about what I have dubbed the Great Chicago Pizza Wars, a.k.a. why I'm glad I'm not at the Melnati's Christmas parties. I already like that intro. <laughs> Some people say Ike Sewell and Rick Ricardo, who own Pizzeria Uno, intended to create an entirely American variation of pizza. Yet, the BBC says, and I love this quote, records of C or Ricardo making pizza or even showing any ability in the kitchen are noticeably absent, fueling the claims. That tracks. Owners taking uh, credit for the workers' output. Not at all what we're seeing with Sagastra. Rudy died, and his son, Lou, worked with him, and he didn't feel like he had a place at Uno's anymore. He went and started Lou Milnati's in the suburb of Lincolnwood. Both restaurants are players in the popular pizza game in Chicago. I think Lou's is more well-known Due to The Daily Show and Emily in Paris. There was a bit when when the Freedom Tower in New York became the tallest building in the United States of America. And The Daily Show ripped on our pizza and Lou Melnati's sent him a pizza. 
and he ate it on air. Mm. And Emily in Paris, I have not seen it because it gave me very uh, Carrie Sex in the City in Paris vibes, and it's written by the same people. In fact, she steps in dog shit, episode three. But there's a dig at Lou Malnati's and Chicago Pizza. I actually got involved in a thread in a group dedicated to Bravo shows where I just said, hey, I'm not watching this show because it gives me Sex and City Carrie and Paris vibes. I made a joke. I'm a Chicagoan. I'm not going to take an insult at our pizza. And it declined into a debate on what the best Chicago style pizza was. It was crazy. Here's where things get confusing. According to the BBC, the story does not end here, however. Lou Malnati had a a half-brother, Rudy Jr., who opened his own joint, Paisano's, in 1991 in downtown Chicago. A waiter at Paisano's divulged that Rudy and Lou's mother, Donna Marie, gave Rudy Jr. the original recipe developed by Rudy Sr. himself. So while Lou went off to Lincolnwood, Donna Marie spent her nights in the kitchen rolling out dough from the secret recipe at Pisano's. Who is using the original recipe today remains a point of debate. Over and over, if I know Chicago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think a lot of people know this story. I do have quite one quick correction. Donna Marie was not Lou's mom, hence the half-brother part. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, okay, got it. Yeah, the BBC miswrote that. It confused me. It's how they both had the Milnati last name. I set out to do an easy Epicurean episode and ended up getting an education about the great Chicago pizza battles. It's amazing. Did you ever go into Great Lake Pizza in Andersonville? It was the thing for five years, and it was artisan. I think it was a husband and wife. I'm not sure. But artisan pizza, like halfway in between Chicago style and fresh ingredients, Italian style and all that. But their jam was, we're not going to tell you how long it's going to take. It's oh. just going to take what it takes. So do you want to stay or do you want to come back? It'll take what it takes. So you had to either hang out or whatever. And one time, me and one of our mutual friends had ordered pizza. And we went to this restaurant next door to wait for it. And one of the waiters comes next door and he's, oh, Jay-Z and Beyonce just picked up a pizza from Great Lake. Oh. I'm, you didn't tell us then the tables around us were like, wait, did they have to wait? And the waiters, no. And everyone, what? (laughs) That's what they got upset about. (laughs) That's what they got upset about. It wasn't that they missed them. It's like, wait. (laughs) Yeah. Meanwhile, did you know that Italian beef is having a moment? Now? Yeah. Since June 2022, when the bear premiered. Oh, of course. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Chicago-style restaurants around the country have faced fierce demand. Search interest on Google doubled 
And that was when I, I wrote this part of the episode in February. So Lord only knows what it's like. Since the second season. Oh, my God. I love that show, but it's also very stressful. It's a lot. I can't watch it. I'm going to try again. It, it's stressful. and It's great, though. It's amazing. And, and it requires a level of attention that generally I'm not giving to TV these days. Oh, yeah. I want to appreciate good writing and pay attention to it. And there's shows that are procedural crime dramas that I can have on the background, like knit or do something that doesn't require my full attention. Right. It is, it is the former, not the latter. Yeah. Y- yeah. Describe an Italian beef sandwich to the listeners. Oh my gosh. This is my worst Chicago food. Cause not my, <laughs> let me, I, I, I'm going to attempt to see what I get right. Okay. Hoagie style bun, mm-hmm. like slabs of beef, and I think maybe they come off. Sometimes they come off that big round thing. Maybe not. No, that big round thing's euro. Yeah, euros. Peppers, onions. I don't know if it has cheese. I'll I'll help you out here, <laughs> please, because I'm flailing. There's a lot of different ways you can get it, comprised of ultra thin slices of roast beef smoldered and served with an au juice on on a long French roll, which, based on diner's preference, sometimes dipped in the juice. It can be topped with giardina. How do you say that? I don't eat spice. Giardinera? Yeah. Giardinera, yes. Or an Italian green sweet pepper. That's ordering it sweet. And cheese. Okay. And the, the roll is made by one bakery in Chicago, which is why it's very hard to replicate an Italian beef anywhere outside of Chicago. Anthony Bourdon had this to say. He's giving us some quotes on the food. There's something a little awkward about going up to a grown man and saying, I'd like some Italian beef, hot, sweet, and wet, my good man, to which his response is, make it juicy. The bear came out with season two, the New York Times food section, posted a recipe of how to make your Italian beef at home, which Chicagoans aren't doing that. They made it look Instagrammable. I can't imagine. It would look like a mess. Chicago Twitter went nuts. (laughs) Like, that's a salad on top. Needless to say, it, it looked nothing like the sandwich. And it was, it's a little bit like posting a lender's bagel with cream cheese and saying it's a New York schmear. We have a couple origin stories for Italian beef. Some say it came out of necessity during the Great Depression, which I don't doubt. But according to a recent piece in NPR, it's a little more racist than that, which I tend to believe more. Because this is Chicago in the 1800s, early 1900s. Basically, when immigrants went to the market, they were sold the cheaper slash less desirable cuts of meat, such as the less tender roasts on ends of beef. Less desirable, again. Yes. yes. The thrillist says... While many in the beef business claim to have invented the Italian beef, 
The common ground is that its origins lie in the Italian-American immigrant tradition of quote-unquote peanut weddings, prevalent among Italians who immigrated to Chicago in the early 1900s. Because the new immigrants didn't have much money, wedding receptions would be held in homes and church basements where peanuts and other cheap foods designed to feed as many people as possible were served. This included cuts of beef. And they found that cooking the meat all day made it tender. Then they masked the questionable quality with a crispy bread and adding spices. And to make it last longer, either because they were poor or for this unauthorized catering, they cut it thin. Pascal Scalia and a group of allies popularized the recipe by starting small stands around town. They used similar recipes and perfected Chicago's original Italian beef sandwich. What they were doing was they would have the catering and the businessmen stands around town. Al Ferrari, along with his sister and brother-in-law, Francis and Chris Paselli, founded Al's Beef in 1938. Mm-hmm. Anto, sorry Italian people, Junior, and Tony, Uncle Junior as he was known to Carl's family, Azato opened Mr. Beef in 1961. 1961, okay. Yeah. These are the two big ones, and Mr. Beef is where they film the bear. Yep. It's also worth noting that the original Al's was a cover for a bookmaking business. (laughs) Chicago. And it was successful that's the word i'm looking for that they eventually moved it to a brick and mortar i sent you an episode from wbez's curious city about the history of malort did you get a chance to listen to it and don't feel bad if you didn't no i didn't see it i'm so sorry they're looking at when malort became popular and i sent it to you because it starts with these public radio types sitting down to do a shot at the Old Town Ale House. Oh, I thought I knew you were going to say it. Oh, crossroads <laughs> of the universe. Oh, it, this one gets better. This one gets so much better. By the end of it, I wished I hadn't sent it to you because there is an Omalort and Alyssa Land twist. Oh, <laughs> go for it. How would you describe Malort? It It comes on quite strong. It feels like the older, more experienced uncle to Jaeger, but it's got just, it's much more complex and much weirder. <laughs> I like to say that it tastes like stomach bile when you have the dry heaves mm-hmm. sprinkled with bug spray. Somebody yeah, asked me to describe it when I was bartending and someone said, she's not underselling that. Now, I lived here from 1994 until 2008. During which time I spent a night or two in a bar. And I had never heard of Malort. Mm -hmm. I came back in 2016 
And people talked about it being this time-honored Chicago tradition, such as dibs or politicians getting arrested. What is Malort? I'm pulling out all of my fancy sources today. Food and Wine describes it this way. Malort occupies the rare air of popular city-specific beverages that both connote pride and are widely perceived as being bad. Are there even any others? When else has a city said both, this defines us and this is terrible, about the same liquid? Over the years, I've heard people describe Malort as citrus-flavored gasoline, the regional prank beverage, burnt vinyl car seat condensation, the vile flower liquor, pure peer pressure, the bad thing, hipster virtue signaling juice, yeah. and more. Malort's foul novelty has long acted as a prompt for an informal, vocabulary-rich Chicago party game best titled Describe the Singular Experience of Consuming Malort. A few fun facts I found about Malort. Until 2012, it was the shot that bartenders gave to seek revenge on bad customers. Yes, yes. Yeah. Jepson's Malort, that's the official name of it, is a Basque liquor, and it was introduced in the 1930s after a Swedish immigrant, Carl Jepson. Uh, it's said that he was a hardcore smoker, and the only thing he could taste alcohol-wise was Malort. Jeez. <laughs> Malort is a general term for the key ingredient, which is wormwood. In Russia... Malort translates to Chernobyl. Is, is wormwood the same thing in what do you call it? The green fairy in absinthe? Is it the same yeah, thing? Yes, it's the same thing as what you have in absinthe. Okay. Absinthe is also a Basque liquor. Thank you for asking because getting in there would have seemed too technical. It's all, and by the way, they're considered to be medicinals. There's the medicinal factor of Jägermeister that it coats your tummy. Mm -hmm. That's supposed to be the same thing, Malort. They sold it during prohibition. I read that if the police question Jepson, he would offer them a shot. And after tasting it, they were convinced that no one would ever choose to drink it. Possibly very correct. This is a thrillist. Though Jepson's is no longer the tiny mom and pop shop it once was, not too long ago, they only had two employees and zero marketing dollars. The long tradition of relying on devoted fans to generate ad slogans is still a celebrated art form on social media. Here are a few gems from the archives. Now, these are what I'm gathering, what their guerrilla marketing team used. Malort, tonight's the night you fight your dad. 
Malort, the champagne of pain. <laughs> Malort, turning taste buds into taste foes for generations. Drink Malort, it's easier than telling people you have nothing to live for. Malort, what soap washes its mouth out with. <laughs> Malort, these pants aren't going to shit themselves. <laughs> Malort, the authentic taste of social distancing. Mm. Malort, pumpkin spice for sadists. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite was 45 was in town in fall of 2019. There was a protest sign that said four more years. I'd rather drink Malort. About a week ago, the Sun-Times wrote an article. The person who wrote the article is the same podcaster who did the WBEZ Curious City a couple weeks ago. They wrote a piece and they said this. In the late 2000s, Sam Metchling was a bouncer at a wine bar when a guy at work dared him to try Malort. He said it tasted like that junk drawer that everybody has in their kitchen. And this is a quote from Sam, by the way. And that just seemed so insane to me. Metchling said, they go on to say, but as soon as Metchling tasted it, he knew the description wasn't an exaggeration. He started introducing it to friends at birthday parties and other gatherings. He became obsessed with seeing people's first reactions, which have become known as Malort Face. He began hosting Malort-themed trivia nights and comedy shows. They go on to say he created Twitter and Facebook pages for Malort, which didn't have its own accounts at the time, and documented people's reactions to the drink. Those included phrases like, it tastes like the day dad left. And <laughs> Because Blagojevich wasn't the worst thing that came out of Chicago. He got a job as a bartender. He was having these events out of the bar called Patty Long's, which is on diversity and seminary-ish. To cover costs, he created Malort t-shirts. He just wanted to break even. He's buying, literally, he's buying shots for people. And he wants to cover the cost that he's spending on these shots so that he can do his comedy thing. So he starts selling Malort shirts. And the first day, according to owner Pat Berger, a hundred people came in to buy the shirts. He's making way more money than he anticipated on the shirts. And he feels guilty. So he looks up the owner and sends a handwritten note and a check. I'm not trying to make money off of your thing. It eventually gets returned by the good old Chicago Mail, marking the owner, whose name is Patty Gablick, as deceased. Mm -hmm. Patty Gablick was a legal secretary, and her boss had inherited Malort, and then he gave it to her. Her joke when he was alive was, why can't you own a liquor that I want to drink? Lest anyone thinks we're being harshly mean to Malort, there's no one... There are people now that think it's good, but I question them. I think that's virtue signaling. So virtue signaling. Yeah, I've never heard someone say that was delicious. Yeah, I have friends who drink Malora and they're like, no, it sucks. It's also 70 proof. So it's a pretty harmless shot. 
This is from the Sun-Times. Around 2012, Gablick showed up unannounced with her lawyer at Patty Long's. The meeting was tense at first. Then Metchling showed the visitors a letter he sent Gablick months earlier, professing his love for Malord. He'd included a check with profits from t-shirt sales. The letter had been returned by the U.S. Postal Service. That changed the mood, and Gablick offered Metchling a job. Metchling told the Sun-Times, It was like going from thinking that I was going to be financially destroyed by this corporation to landing my dream job in the matter of five minutes. And I think Gablick said something along the lines of like, because I did research into this when I was naming the podcast. I planned on suing him and I ended up hiring him. Mm -hmm. He worked for Malort for nearly a decade and he continued to host events. But now they were endorsed by Malort. And sales jumped. The Sun-Times interviewed Pat Berger, who owned Patty Long's, and he provided this quote. That was the start of Malort's giant resurgence from just being available at VFW halls and the Green Mill into being in every hipster bar in Chicago. Yeah. And I felt like they started making little displays for it because you would look up and see it in a prominent place. Oh, yeah. Chicago's CH Distillery bought the company when Gablick retired. Production of Malort had moved to Florida in the 1980s. It returned to Chicago in 20. I looked at a WTTW. Again, our public television (laughs) has a graph of shots purchased. And in 2007, this is shots purchased by the million. It was 0.4 million shots. In normal people terms, that's 400,000 shots. Which is a lot to me. By 2016, it was 2.4 million shots a year. 7.9 million shots a year. The graph is pretty much an upward trend, except in 2020, when it dipped from 4.9 million to 4 million, proving that no one is sitting at home drinking Malort. My God. My God. At least you're closer to the toilet. Yeah. Are you ready for the twist? Okay. The Corcoran's connection? Oh, my God. Okay. Pat, the owner of Patty Lungs. Yeah was the Friday and Saturday night bartender at Corcoran's until he opened his own bar in 2000. That's amazing. And that was when I regretted sending it to you because we there's the Corcoran's tie into this. <laughs> I texted Miles, who runs Salad Listen, and I'm, I'm like, Malort became popular, and there's a tie-in to the bar where I got pickpocketed <laughs> which is referenced in episode one <laughs> which many other things happen at that bar oh 
<laughs> yeah. I remember, I do remember one Christmas in Andersonville being in a famous longtime Andersonville bar. And there was this little group of younger people, two couples, and they were, I could tell, annoying the hell out of the bartender. One of the women comes up and she's just, what's, do you have any suggestions for something like light and fruity or just really the taste of the season? And he's, yeah, I'd suggest a glog or malort. Yeah. Sometimes I do suggestive selling and I'm like just over it for whatever reason. I'm always like, yeah, you should all just go do a shot of malort. Yeah. (laughs) I've had it twice. How many have you, how many times have you had it? Oh, so the first time I had it, I was stone cold sober. I was training as a bartender. It was right after I moved back and I had a sip for taste. Yeah. It was so gross. Yeah. The second and last time I was in 2021, I was at a bar, which apparently is the largest purveyor of Malort in the city of Chicago. We made friends with these people and they insisted that we do shots of Malort. I tried to get out of it, but it was Malort or nothing. But I'd had like three beers and it was much better. (laughs) Yeah. I do have a few thoughts. The history behind these four very different consumables is also the story of Chicago. Aside from Malort, the average Chicagoan doesn't consume any of these things on a regular basis. Sometimes we'll even denigrate them amongst ourselves. <laughs> but heaven forbid an outsider does. Again, aside from Malort. Yep. And yep. They are all in their way a metaphor for Chicago. The story of immigrants, a city founded on Crime and alcohol, also the city that works. City that works? They're all very different stories. Mm -hmm. I see it as this metaphor for Chicago. And when you tell people the the Chicago hot dog story, it's a much more interesting story than you just can't put ketchup on it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, That was fascinating. Yeah, and again, as you said, aside from the Lord, the (laughs) evolution... The evolution of those foods, like alongside the cultural evolution, is that's fascinating. And I think also you see it as a way for immigrants to make their way here in Chicago. So they stop getting the less desirable cuts of meat, but both metaphorically and realistic. And yes, actually, that's like the name for the newest band. Yeah. No, but also that, yes, a a way for them to make their way and a way for them to influence the new culture that they're in, which got absorbed without, after a while, properly crediting them, which, surprise, surprise. That would also be, I don't think people really associate the hot dog with the Germans. No, no. But it is. They're. Yeah, they associate it with Rigby Field or something. And you, when you go back to think of the 1855 lager beer riots and how punitive they were to a group of people that brought us a beer and hot dogs. This one. <laughs> I knew you'd have some fun with it. I like 
do you have any thoughts? <laughs> no, just I think the takeaway is what you just said is that you know how all that stuff got abs absorbed so strongly into the culture of Chicago, but really it was these folks, these immigrants from other places who were doing it because they had to, and we took it over and made it ours. Not Chicago's a melting pot in many ways, but also it's a I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Kind of <laughs> I mean, and all people talk about there's nothing more American than baseball. There's the things you associate with going to a baseball game. Yeah. Which were introduced by people who were thought of as less than. Yeah. And you know, I'm not gonna get too long into it, but the, that that stupid Jason Aldean song. Have you heard about this? What's that? Something about living in a small town. Don't try this in my small town or something like that. Okay. And it's pretty dog whistly. And in the video, they use footage from the Black Lives Matter 2020, yeah. which if I were, I were running for office, anybody knows anybody from running for office as a Democrat, either in a small town or your name is Joe Biden, I would be using that to point out that's actually Donald Trump's America. Yeah. That happened under the other guy. CMT mm -hmm. pulled the song. Mm -hmm. It's a whole thing. I actually grew up in a town of about 4,000. And if somebody did a crime, we let the police solve it. We didn't run down the street like a wild mob. And that's a key right. to me with the whole, like that hot dog and beer are uniquely American. No, they're not. And also just think about that hot dog and beer at Wrigley Field in the quintessentially American game. Um, yeah. We'll find out later if you research it, but but that's the worst versions of beer and hot dogs there are at that place. I'll always have it because it's baseball. Yeah. I, I will always have it because it's baseball. I remember one time being at a game, and this is back when I would get a lot of free tickets, and right Cubs weren't very good. <laughs> it was cold. It was Mother's Day. We just decided that we're going to go somewhere warmer at where the beer's good. <laughs> Uh, all right. Thank you so much for joining me today. Do you have anything you want to promote? No, I am good right now. Thank you for the ask. All right. And listeners, we appreciate you. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave a five-star review and hit the subscribe button before Someone has Malort face. And tune in next week when we discuss the great Chicago flood. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.